This is Power Athlete Radio. With your host, Denny Cage, Professor Booty, and the Luke Summers. And now, toes forward, hips locked, shoulders set, and retract those scapulas. It's time for some knowledge bombs. episode of Power Athlete Radio. This week we have clinical sports psychologist Vince Lodato. Vince heads the Cooper Speed and Strength Lab out of the National Sports Performance Institute in Tampa. Over the years he's helped high-level athletes and teams optimize their performance using innovative techniques such as vision and motor programming, neuro tracking, and psychological training. Vince knows that to truly be a performance war, athletes and coaches must leave no stone unturned when integrating the latest technology. Later in the show, we discover the term immediate onset muscle soreness. Find out why the complex training is simultaneously stimulating tears of joy and pain. It's time to flex that frontal lobe and break a mental sweat with episode 91 of Power Athlete Radio. What's up, Power Athlete Nation? This is Callie here taking over for Denny on this episode of Power Athlete Radio. Today we have uh, the standard crew. We have myself. We have Luke Summers. We have Steve Booty. <laughs> we have John. Hello. And we also have our special guest, Vince Lodato. Um, Vince, first and foremost, let me just say thank you so much for joining us on this episode. We were all pretty stoked to have someone of... Uh, your intellect joining this show. We, we oftentimes are just kind of like a bunch of idiots talking back and at each other. We prefer the term lowbrow. Lowbrow. What's that, Steve? Kelly speaks only for herself. It's true. I'm just projecting my own insecurities out there. And we've just been blessed with the presence of Denny K. Denny. Den- oh, Denny, you're here. What's happening, guys? Yay! Well, I just I just uh, did the intro, so it won't live up to probably everyone's expectations of what you usually do. But <laughs> there was an element of enthusiasm, so. <laughs> okay. You sound um, good. Well, thank you. I'm just getting over a little plain cold, which hopefully text won't get. Text is communicating via text on a, a flight right now. But um, but let's get straight to our guest because I don't want to waste any time. Vince, um, is he sort of uh, knows Tex because Tex coached his son at Marymount um, in lacrosse. Is that correct, Vince? Yes, that's right. Yeah, and Vince, um, tell us a little bit about your background and what you're currently doing, where your work is at uh, the, the Cooper Speed and Strength Facility as well as the National Sports Performance Institute. Perfect. Uh, uh, and again, a little bit about my background. Um, I was a, a master's level trained clinician years ago, uh, involved in some sports locally in Tampa, involved uh, originally with the Association for the Advancement of Applied Sports Psychology. And, and uh, when the Tampa Bay Rays were formed, uh, Major League Baseball organization, they needed a point person, someone to be available to players to deal with issues and things. And, and got started then, so this is back 16, 17 years ago on the professional level, 
and just sort of evolved from there and eventually became a certified consultant with the Association for Applied Sports Psychology and involved with college, high school, professional level athletes from Major League Baseball, some NHL players, football guys, college athletes. So it's a little background, sort of evolved that way. Um, the National Sports Performance Institute focuses on mental and vision training specifically in, uh, in a collaboration with Cooper Sport Performance and Rehab, Cooper Speed School. Um, several years ago, I uh, started looking at what was happening in the field of sports psychology, performance psychology, the mental game as we call it, uh, and it was evolving more into the use of technology and systematic training programs for athletes. You know, the old way we kind of show up and uh, do some uh, breathing, relaxation, staying centered and grounded. We preach, preach about mental toughness, uh, and athletes would look at you and go, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, I got it, I got it. And you never really knew what was going on internally with them. It was all their own report that, yeah, I'm good, man. I'm, I've got it, I get it, you know, and then you wonder what was going on. Um, now we have everything from testing and evaluation systems to, to training systems on computers, 3D technology. Uh, neuroscience has added a lot of background to the field, um, vision training. So we've combined all of that into a mental and vision lab at Cooper Sports Performance. So we're basically, to summarize it, combining performance training, motor programming, cre creating conditions of your sport along with technology that trains and measures, gives you scores on the mental game. Decision-making, focus under pressure, concentration, uh, and, and managing under those kinds of conditions. So we brought it all, all together for athletes. Uh, so that's sort of a broad history and a little bit of brief background on, on what we're doing. Um, I'm sure Steve is nerding out right now because he, in fact, is, is a neuroscientist and uh, a professor as well. So uh, I hope that you ah. guys, yeah, yeah. I hope you guys get a chance to sort of chat more. Um, and I want to just uh, kind of clarify. So the National Sports Performance Institute is, uh, they use the Cooper Speed and Strength Facility to kind of facilitate, if you will, the uh, the processes that you guys are working on. Is that correct? Yeah, that's probably the best way to, to put it. We're located at Cooper's facility. Gotcha. Uh, nice. Um, <clears throat> and how how exactly did you? I mean, what prompted you to get interested in um, in this specialty? I mean, was there a, sort of a moment or an experience, or did it evolve over time? Your fascination with I mean, just for me personally, I'm wondering what sort of drew you to this field. Well, I was, uh, again, being involved on the professional level. And at one point, I was consulting with three different major league organizations at one time, doing a lot of clinical work um, at that point. We got into doing psychological testing and profiles for uh, baseball's amateur draft. And so, again, it, the work just evolved in that way, but specifically in terms of what we're doing with the mental and vision lab. Again, a few years ago, I saw some vendors at the Association for Applied Sports Psychology Conference. They have an annual conference, a national organization. They certify consultants, which is where I have my certification from. So the association always would have vendors and saw some new technology. And biofeedback in sports has been around a long time, but it was cumbersome. You had to bring all the the sensors and you know hook people up, and it was basically done in a lab. Um, 
So I saw some new technology and talking to some of my colleagues and peers that were there, it was sort of like, oh, yeah, this stuff is kind of cool to play around with, but, you know, uh, is anybody ever really going to use this stuff and, and whatnot? It was very academic, very clinical, very cold, all done in sort of lab settings. Well, I continued to look at it and was fascinated by it, and I said, this is going to be around for a while. Looked at some of the things that were available there at the conference, did some research on it, and spent, well, better part of a year looking at what was out there and what was legitimate and had benefit and value and what was just products that were kind of new and bells and whistles with, you know, new world marketing. So I looked at that, got into it, bought the technology and equipment wanted to locate it someplace where it would not be in an academic kind of setting or a very cold kind of clinical setting and started looking at performance centers. Hey, can I interrupt you for just one second? Can sure. you give an example of the type of, like, like what kind of equipment, what kind of testing was, was occurring? You know, yeah, what, and what were the, what were the sure. flops? Like what made it and what were the flops? Yeah. Well, um, some of the systems we have, we have a, a 3D multi-object tracking system called the NeuroTracker. It's got multiple programs and multiple levels of programming. So again, you're talking about 3D computer screens, TV screens, 52-inch TV screens. And basically, it's multi-object tracking, eight objects, different colors, rotating, changing colors, and having to track the objects with your focus and attention and not being distracted by the ones that aren't important to you. So if you think about that, you're in a 3D, on a 3D screen. Um, if you're a basketball player, we have kids that are dribbling basketballs, high school kids and some college players now at a level where they're dribbling basketballs and tracking multiple objects at one time that are changing colors, it, it, it stops the screen. You record numbers of objects you've tracked, and it gives you a, a right score or percentage of a right score. So it's that type of technology. Or it's um, a visual recognition and processing program. You know, a lot of time in sports, it's what you see, not what you think. The more you think, the more it slows you down in your reaction time. So allowing your eyes to be able to process information quickly and then recalling objects, images, numbers that are flashed on a screen to be able to make decisions with anywhere from one-tenth of a second to six-tenths of a second. Um, rotating objects for baseball players. Very small, tiny objects that rotate at a variety of speeds. And you think about hitters being able to pick up spin of a pitch and identify that quickly. So that's the type of technology that we have in use. And again, what we do is we start with basic, relaxed, sitting, getting you know baseline scores, and then beginning to move them through movement, motor programming, simulating their sport as closely as possible, and also in a high-stress environment. So there's noise, there's discussion, there's music. Same way you have to go out and play and compete. So... Very um, cool. I didn't mean to uh, mess up your flow no. there. So, so it it basically <laughs> evolved. It evolved from like these more cumbersome sort of tests and processes, and then you you sort of um, you you built upon those, right? Sure, sure. That's exactly right. And and even as recent as the some of the most recent conferences, the presentations on use of neurofeedback and biofeedback in sport, the athletes sitting at a desk, laptop, computer screen multiple sensors hooked up to them, 
and recording the data. Well, our athletes, they're not hooked to sensors, they're moving, they're tracking objects with their eyes, they're making decisions quickly, um, they're processing information in fractions of a second in an environment where there's noise, distraction, stress, pressure. You know, if you think about like, the old football teams, you know, no, the old football teams, but a football team that would practice for a, a, a rivalry road game in a hostile stadium piping in crowd noise. Well, that's what we do in our lab in our room. We don't, you know, we're not going to purposely throw someone off course, but we're going to increase the level of stress and distractions while they're processing all of this information visually, cognitively, managing their emotion, managing their level of arousal and anxiety. Do um do teams use that as uh, a barrier? So, for instance, would they use that as like a testing um, to determine if someone was going to you know, like make the team versus uh, an afterthought assessment. I mean, is it a develop, I'm sure it's a developmental tool, but is it also, can it prevent, like, is it a barrier of entry? If, for instance, you, you find out through quantifying, like, that they're slow or their reaction time slow or they can't, um, you know, they can't make optimal decisions under, you know, duress or whatever. There, there's a lot of debate within the field of sports psychology, whether these types of things, whether it's just a, the, the psychological evaluation or some of these types of assessments and training tools, you know, that, uh, using technology and whether they're useful or not. And the, there's so many variables to elite athletic performance. One is just, you know, physical talent. You can develop that to a certain point, but some, some athletes are just going to be more gifted than others physically. So there's some debate about that. My belief is from what I've seen and what's, what we've done over the last, Within the last year, we haven't been doing this for a long period of time, but what I've seen over the last year with our athletes, there's a lot of, of evaluation and assessment information that I can gather just reading body language on how they approach some of these things. Uh, you know, the head's, the head's tilting, the leg's shaking, the, you know, the oh crap moment that they get if, when they miss, you know, or they're off track. So there's a lot of good evaluation for, for, for future training, some of the, some of the um, scores may indicate areas where we have to put more work in. I've always said whether it's our psychological testing program or some of these kinds of things, it's not a select in or select out. It's, what, it's getting a good broad view of the athlete and then where do we put our resources? Uh, you know, where do we put our work in to make, you know, to give the athlete every opportunity to be successful? So that's probably the best way I can answer it. Yeah, there's a lot of good diagnostic and evaluative information that comes from all of the baseline scores we get. Um, but I would never want to use any of this as a select in or select out. I wouldn't want to use it to develop a comprehensive program for the athlete, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in terms of training. Vince, um, hi, this is Steve. Uh, I have a few questions. I'm really interested in this NeuroTrack stuff. Um, do you find that – I like – you probably do like in everything else. There are a lot of individual variation in terms of initial performance. Do you find that some people are sort of just perhaps genetically better at these kinds of tasks? Because um, let me give you a little background. I, we did some research with uh, the Department of Naval Research and the DOD for uh, naval warship commanders and did similar tasks mm -hmm. like uh, multi-object tracking while distractors are coming at you. Um, and some some guys were really good. And um, they they excelled through the training and other individuals were terrible and 
the the training, no matter how much training we gave them, it was almost like they, they couldn't quite get that good. Do you find the same thing with this sort of sport tracking? With, with the athletes, yeah. I, I think when you look at their initial approach to this and then how they scored, you know, looking for naval commanders is different than looking for somebody that can hit a baseball. Um, there's some guys, and, and in every sport, there are guys that can just, they're just going to flat out play well uh, because they're gifted. But I think to, the best way to answer your question is there are some where we can see uh, in variety of sports as they get to higher and higher levels, some of these things are going to become limiting. Okay. And which may lead to a position change, or it may wind up being the you know the ceiling that they reach where they never get to the next level. Right. Let Let me ask you one other question. And some actually, Callie, if you don't mind, can I ask two more questions? Oh my gosh, please. Okay. So so my one question is something that we talk a lot about um, at Power Athlete, um, and uh, we're currently in this program. It's called Field Strong, which is a a physical program, a physical training program in which um, from John's experience he noticed that some guys were really strong in the weight room and then when they went out on the field um, maybe they weren't so good whereas other guys weren't so strong in the weight room but on the field they could just manhandle bodies and I was wondering if in these neural or these cognitive programs or, or processes if uh, some people perhaps when there's no arousal, I'm sure you're familiar with Yerkes Dotson and all that, but when there's no arousal, perform subpar, and then under levels of competition or instances of competition, um, they kind of rise to the occasion, kind of have like a mental field strong, if you will. Does that make sense? Sure. Sure, absolutely. Um, you know, for some, and you mentioned about, you know, level of arousal or excitement. I mean, you know, for a long time, years ago, we were talking about, you know, you didn't want anxiety per se. You didn't want that arousal, you know. Um, now we've come to the belief and understanding that, you know, you, you need to have a certain level of that to perform. Right. And and what you do with it to, to stimulate attention, focus, you know, where you direct that. So, you know, I, there are some guys that are going to perform really well in our lab. And again, as you said, for a variety of reasons, may not perform as well on the field or the court or, you know, the ice, whatever, uh, for, for a whole lot of reasons. Um, but we can get a pretty good idea of where they're at in terms of their cognitive process and their attention and focus, ability to manage distractions. Uh, the rest is, is physical training. You know, you're going to, in every sport, you're going to practice your sport many more hours than you're ever going to actually play in a game. Sure. Um, you know, I mean, that just, that happens. You look at a college team. You know, you play two, three, four games a week, certain sports like baseball or softball, but you're going to practice many more hours than you're ever going to play. Um, so it, it's it's assessment, but it's also the training that goes into it. Okay, I just have one more question for my neuroscience kind of brain here. I'm I've actually been looking at these neurotracker uh, systems and. They're uh, probably a little bit out of the price range of my tiny little gym. Um, but uh, I wonder, is there any data on uh, neuroplastic changes 
with the training associated with this because I, I train a lot of youth athletes. My gym trains a lot of youth athletes from 11 years up through college um, and I'm really interested if anybody has been doing any brain studies on this or like, you know, uh, imaging studies on this to see if there are actual changes in, in the link between cognition and neuroplasticity. As far as I know, I'm not aware of any, but you raise an interesting point because um, with the brain imaging, uh, like AIM and stuff on ADD and ADHD, um, it would somebody will do it. I haven't seen it. The you mentioned the looking at the neurotrackers, cognizance would have that information. Um, I haven't seen it. They're pretty good about sending out updates and new information and new studies. Uh, this was originally developed, the psychologist that developed it was up in Canada, and I believe his wife had Parkinson's. So he developed it for her, and they have their, they have two branches. What I have is in the, the sport end of the company. There's another side of the company that really deals with things like Parkinson's, uh, strokes, uh, head trauma, you know, head trauma folks, concussion recovery, sure. all of that. So there is that data that's out there, but it's on a different side of the company. So I really haven't seen or been privy to it. But then what you raise an interesting point because with brain scanning that's there now, especially with ADD and ADHD, that they're looking at that. Um, that I guess that remains to be seen. As far as I know, it hasn't been done yet. Hmm. It's interesting to think about that because when we're talking about weight training or athletic training, a lot of times we talk about the, the role of the central nervous system in uh, sort of muscle control and automatic muscle control and then integrating that with a cognitive attentional overload, um, you'd expect a lot of, you'd expect, I think, a lot of plasticity, um, although I'm not exactly sure how that would play out because I, I've looked for some of these studies and I haven't been able to find any. So. Steve, can you can yeah, you define um, neuroplasticity for us? Sure, sure. Uh, uh, yeah, so um, neuroplasticity is basically changes in the brain architecture associated with experience. So the classic example of neuroplasticity would be uh, learning, where uh, two neurons become more strongly connected because of an association of some process. The animal learns something and the organism learns something. Like learning um, the definition of No, 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 no. It would be like motor learning, like, uh, uh, like okay. <laughs> learning to press a bar or learning to avoid a shock, these types of learning, or even automatic unconscious learning, like um, uh, the classic Pavlovian uh, dog salivation to the metronome type of learning. These things that are... Uh, relatively unconscious but still have a motor component to them. Mm -hmm. uh, but plastic changes can also happen uh, more robustly as we develop. So think about the changes in your cognition and brain as you go through puberty. Um, those are neuroplastic changes associated with the sort of bathing of the brain in sex steroids during, uh, during sexual maturation. So just basically changes in brain connectivity that have a behavioral uh, behavioral phenotype or behavioral output would be considered neuroplasticity and we can measure that using some behavioral measures but as a neuroscientist for me it's always interesting to actually see how the brain is changing in other words are we are we able to free up some attentional resources to to do something more physical um, those are changes that 
are hard to determine uh, sometimes behaviorally. We can see them actually happening in the brain. So does that make sense? So it's basically just changes yeah. in the brain. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about Vince's approach to athlete assessments. I mean, Vince, when an athlete comes to you, you obviously have that specific approach, that mental toughness approach, and then you go through the vision training, um, reaction training. You know, can you give us sort of an outline of what you would do with either, you know, a high-end athlete, a youth athlete? What's, what's kind of like the baseline for you and your process with them? The, uh, the older athletes uh, that come in are, are older high school athletes, college athletes, and the pro guys. Uh, I will use some other assessments, whether it's psychological assessment, uh, mental skills assessment, pencil, paper things. The younger athletes really may not have enough self-awareness. They just kind of answer yes to everything on those kind of tests. So they're really not uh, – there's not enough self-awareness for that type of an assessment. But the older athletes will combine – uh, you know, psychological evaluation, mental skills assessment with a neurotracker score, an eye metric score, and baseline scores on vision training and uh, near far accommodation um, and get scores on them. So we'll take all that and assess that and then write an individualized program for them. And it's more prescribed for their sport, per se. Um, you know, volleyball players may do more uh, work on our saccades more than um, the rotating objects, where they make quick eye movements left to right, top to bottom, near far, because of the nature of their sport. Um, again, basketball players navigating through multiple objects, picking out objects uh, of, of their attention and focus. So we'll take all those assessments and then prescribe, write a prescribed program for them based on their individualized sport. Um, you know, other than, you know, other than, I'm not sure if, if that answers your question. Yeah, absolutely. Clearly. Okay. Yeah, um, that's, it's pretty interesting. I mean, yeah. like, obviously that makes perfect sense that, you know, you have a very specialized athlete and you're going to, you know, use very specific tests to kind of determine where they need to go from there. Um, so, I mean, well, beyond and, and, that, and I, go ahead. <clears throat> no, I was going to say, and as an example of that, maybe on a psychological profile, uh, the athlete may score high and being more abstracted and a thinker and a little bit of a ruminator than grounded and focused in the moment. And maybe confidence, you know, their self-confidence, self-assurance is just in an average range. Well, average is okay. And being a thinker and processing things uh, and being lost in thought is okay in the general population. But if you have to make decisions quickly and be confident about your decisions, eh, you know, the, that, that gives us an area that we want to work on. And then we can take that into our lab. We'll give the athlete feedback about that off of a psychological profile, but use, uh, you know, the lab and the mental and vision training to put them in stressful decision-making where they have to make decisions quickly, under pressure, timed. All these things are timed, so they're on the clock, uh, and be confident in their decisions where they're not, you know, uh, we always say in sport, you know, uh, paralysis by analysis, you know, mm -hmm. we try to avoid that. So that's, we'll use all of those together as an example. Yeah. So, I mean, um, when you, do you have any experiences with like outliers in that situation? I mean, obviously you're going to have some people come to you with a degree of mental toughness that's, you know, very high, um, very, very naturally competitive athletes. And then you're going to have you know, potentially very gifted physically athletes who 
who lack that competitiveness or uh, fall apart under certain stressful situations. I mean, um, do you have examples where you either shore up shore up those sort of weaknesses in their training? Sure. You know, when in it's all, one of the things I always ask athletes about mental toughness, and I'll we engage in a conversation about that, and you know, mental toughness is important, and they say, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, tell me what your definition of mental toughness is, and they'll tell me, you know, uh, they can define it in a variety of ways, and the coaches talk about it. But really defining what mental toughness is and what resiliency is and all that I think is important. That's the first step because mentally, being mentally tough doesn't mean just not letting things bother you and moving on. I mean, that's so broad. And we'll look at athletes, how consistent are they in their training and preparation and how consistent are they in, in how they approach their sport. So consistency is important because some, you know, some athletes aren't consistent. You know, they have good days and bad days like we all do, but we'll talk about how do you get a hundred percent out of what you have that day. So how does, I'm sorry for interrupting. So I'm sure you're about to dive into it, but in case you aren't, I mean, what, how does consistency, I mean, play that role in, in mental toughness? You know, when, when you're locked in and you're playing well, regardless of what your sport is, it's fun to get to the ballpark or the, the track or the, the field, the ice. It's fun to practice. It's fun to get in the weight room and work out. It's fun to, you know, it's all good when you're doing well. So consistency when things aren't going well. You know, uh, John Wooden has a great quote that, you know, sports don't build character, they reveal it. And who are you when you're in your toughest moments? And how, how consistent are you about your training and preparation, even when things aren't going well? You know, we, when you look at some of the best performances in, in the world in any sport, um, you know, you're not always 100%, 100% of the time. So can you train consistently when you're not 100%? And again, getting back to what we do in our mental and vision lab, we have the athletes do their program before a workout and then at the end of the workout. Can you maintain your scores and performance when you've just gone through a grueling workout in our, in our gym, your legs are tired, you're hungry, you know, your girlfriend or your boyfriend's waiting for you, you know, you're gassed, you can't breathe, you're out of gas. Can you maintain your focus and concentration? Can you give me 10 minutes in the room, all in, undivided attention, 100% effort? That's and that's how we define mental toughness, not just by words, but by the experience of it. So that's that's an example that I can give you and how we do it in terms of training. Mm -hmm. It's 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 consistency, it's commitment, it's maintaining confidence even when you're at your lowest level. You know, belief and trust that you're going to get through it. Um, you know, and that's that's how we define mental toughness, and that and then that's how we train that in the room. We I want them in there at the end of a training when, you know, they're ready to go. They just they want to go eat, shower, take a nap, sleep, get out of there. And I want them in there. Give me ten to fifteen minutes because you got to be there at the end of the game, not just the beginning. And I know this may seem like a pretty obvious question, but I mean, I'm assuming you see pretty like marked progress. Do you see, for instance, more marked progress? Um, with athletes of like a certain gender or a certain age group, um, you know, where do you where do you see like the biggest gap, I guess, in terms of like 
people, you know, increasing only like a fraction of their mental toughness versus making leaps and bounds. You know, the younger athletes and the younger kids do really well, really quick. Sure. Because I mean, they're they're into the technology. Um, they're they're comfortable with a computer screen and you know those kinds of things. Um, you know, we do. There are some guys that love the gym, but hate the mental work. And there are some guys that they're gonna they're gonna commit and they're engaging in both. Um, if you think about it and put this in perspective that it's like in baseball, every spring training in front of our minor league guys, we have, you know, 175 minor league guys all trying to make rosters and, and break camp. These aren't guys that are in the big league camp. And there's only 30 major league teams and only 25 on a roster. So there's only 750 guys in the big leagues on opening day. And we got 175 of them in our room. Every team has that many, some more, some less. So if you think about it, there's not many spots at the highest level. And it's the guys that, you know, they don't just like to take batting practice. They do, they get their rest and nutrition. They get their workouts in. They're with the strength coach. They get with the trainers. They keep themselves healthy and also keep themselves mentally healthy. And they work the mental game. And that's like that in any sport. You know, there's yeah. only so many people. When you look at, I think the NCAA publishes it every year, the number of kids that play youth sports, high school sports, college sports, and at a professional level, and the numbers drop dramatically at each level. So when, and we see kids, there's always those handful, a handful that are outliers in the gym. You watch them work out, you watch them train, you know, you see 14, 15 year old kids and they want to be right in the mix with the college guys and the pro guys. And they get competitive on the floor and they also get competitive in our lab. So there's those, yeah. those guys, they're just, they're different, and you can see it in them. Yeah. And those are the ones that are going to be one of those 750 one day, or the, only the few that can play in the NBA, or, you know? Yeah, totally. Um, do you give your, when you um, when you go through this development process with them, do you do you give your athletes, like, take-home type, um, you know, things to create habits, uh, whether it be a mental toughness or reaction drills or what have you. I mean, are, are you giving them things to work on outside of just your time with them? Yeah, we do. We give them, um, you know, we call it a travel kit, so to speak. And it'll, it may be concentration grids. It may be some of the technology. I mean, as, as uh, I think what Steve mentioned earlier, some of this is very expensive programs and technology. Um, so it's prohibitive for, you know, the athletes to be able to buy it and have it at home or whatnot. But a lot of our pro guys, when they leave out now, we'll give them a travel kit, so to speak, um, which is a lot of the vision training and concentration exercises. That's awesome. Um, it's Steve, anything else you wanted to add there uh, regarding any of that mental training? No, um, no, I was more interested in sort of like that neuro <laughs> stuff. I mean, I guess one of my questions is sort of, uh, what do you think the the future of sports psychology is? I mean, this technology is interesting, um, but I think I heard you say earlier we're not sure if it has advantages on field. Um, I'm sure it does. Um, just a matter of getting those data and year after year. But where, where do you think the future of sports psychology is going? Well, I, you know, when you talk about future directions, um, one is I think the use of technology to deliver mental skills training 
and that's a mental skills training is a fairly broad term. It covers a lot of things that we do with athletes. But I think one is the use of technology to do that and the use of being able to work with the technology to work with athletes remotely. So one is just in terms of how sports psychology services are delivered. The other is there's performance enhancement and then there's clinical sports psychology. And I, I think and what you know, you'll see is more folks cross-trained. And what I mean by that is I, was, I have sort of a, uh, not an, an interesting background, but, but an individualized background because I had the clinical training and also the sports psychology certification with the association. So there's the performance enhancement and then the clinical work. And I think you'll see some more, uh, I think you'll see more overlapping of that where it's the whole person, not just the performer. So I think you're going to see sports psychology move from just what goes on, you know, takes place on the field uh, to the whole person in, in the enhancement and enjoyment and intrinsic reward of the sport besides just performance enhancement. So that's one, that's one, you know, those two things actually is, you know, the use of technology to deliver mental skills training and then looking at athletes as a whole person, not just a performer. Yeah, like, are you referring to things, for instance, like successes outside of the gym um, or, you know. Or stressors. Stressors, yeah, all of these Stress, var both. variables, dealing with those variables. Yeah. <clears throat> well, both, and, and um, you know, when you look at some of the issues in sport out there that, that besides just the scores or the winning and losing, you look at things like, uh, you know, performance-enhancing substances, the PEDs, the performance-enhancing drugs, or recreational drug use, or, um, you know, uh, the domestic violence issues now in, uh, at the pro level. I mean, we're looking at all of those things, and I think pro teams and colleges are looking at, you know, they're using, they used to use a lot of the counseling center for this stuff. Now they're looking more at trained sports psychologists, because you have to understand the stresses that the athlete goes through to be able to help them with the off-field stuff. So I think what you're seeing now is in a lot of pro teams that are looking at this are, uh, you know, complete systems to aid the athlete off the field, not just on the field. And, you know, we have a great – the coaches always say, and I tell our teams this and coaches all the time, the coaches say, you know, it starts when you walk in the door, meaning when you get to the field. <clears throat> you know, the door opens and you walk in. Okay, now it's all about, you know, being ready to go. And I always tell our athletes, it starts when you walk out of the door. Because what you do, you know, you play a game, what do you do after the game? Where do you go? Who do you hang out with? What are your habits? Are you getting rest and nutrition? Are you leaving the last game behind? Are you getting, you know, the next morning, are you getting your breakfast and getting ready and preparing? You know, so it's more than just showing up and being ready to go when you walk in the door. So I think that's one of the things you're going to see more of is teams having broader support services. <clears throat> excuse me, they're doing a lot of leadership stuff in sport right now. And even at the professional level, things that the Seahawks did, things that the Pittsburgh Pirates are doing, you know, they're looking at leadership and character building at their earliest levels of developing players as opposed to just enhancing performance. What do you think the, why do you think there's the emphasis on that all of a sudden? I'm sorry? Why, I mean, obviously there's value to that, but what do you think caused a shift, a shift in emphasis to that? I think, you know, in, in, in 16 gone 17 years in professional baseball, we've seen a difference in the athletes in a short period of time. 
And what I mean by that is we used to draft kids that were they were baseball players. You came, you were a baseball player. Now these kids are more, you know, they're broader in terms of being athletes. They have interest outside of just their sport. Um, they come from a variety of backgrounds. The, the status and money is bigger now. It keeps getting greater and expanding. And teams invest in, in these athletes, and some of them don't make it, and some do for a variety of reasons. You know, it's, so many variables get into to reaching the highest level. And they're looking at, you know, developmentally, especially in baseball. You get kids that are 18, 19 to 21, 22, and, you know, your brain doesn't really finish developing until about 25. Um, they're looking at that last stage of development from late adolescence into adulthood as a very critical time. Now, that's to put it in cold clinical terms. The bottom line is teams are looking at, and, and sports organizations and colleges are looking at, you know, we expect them to come in and be grown men, and they're still in an age group where, they're, you know, they're not fully adult yet. Sure. So, right. you know, if you, you know, I mean, look at, watch a college football game on Saturday and look at the stands and see what goes on, you know, with the kids in the stands, they're the same age as the athletes on the field. Right. You know, uh, so they're looking at, it's obviously it's protecting an investment, but at the same time, they've come to the realization that these are unfinished products in terms of their development. Vince, um, maybe I could back up a little bit. You had mentioned, uh, I really like that whole athlete perspective because I always tell my athletes, um, you know, as a as a, I was actually trained as a biologist, um, and you know, your body doesn't know the difference between stress. Stress is stress, and it can affect your body. Um, and you mentioned something like performance enhancing drugs. Uh, has anybody tested out some of your uh, technology for increasing the cognitive game or mental game uh, with respect to nootropic cognitive enhancers? So these so-called you know brain-enhancing drugs? You know, I don't know, again, like the question about, you know, neuroplasticity and what's happening. that. I, I don't know of any that are out there. I don't know that anybody's really looked at that. Um, Wasn't there a drug that the NFL banned uh, that was a cognitive enhancer that was effectively creating new neuromuscular pathways or that that was the claim, uh, like ProVigil? Was it ProVigil that they banned? Oh, ProVigil. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Pro ProVigil. Um, you know, I I know for me, uh, you know, they diagnosed me with ADD, uh, which is probably typical of everybody in America. And uh, I used to take, you know, and I still take Adderall, and uh, on occasion I don't nearly take it nearly as much, which is kind of ironic, seeing it's that I don't, I'm not taking the, the same hits and brain trauma after 10 years in the NFL that I do now, so I don't seem to need it like I used to. But I knew that as the season went on, uh, the Adderall became almost more important. And I always thought about, like, man, these hits to the head have to be doing something. And when I went in, I, I actually was in Dr. Amon's study for uh, the NFL on concussions. And, uh, you know, the biggest thing when he went, he looked at, uh, you know, how my brain was working and, uh, you know, the effects. Uh, the first thing he said is, like, do um, you think Adderall? I was like, yeah. He's like, uh, let me tell you why that worked to really help you because this is the area of your brain that was uh, most impacted in your NFL career. So, um, and then I, I remember him also mentioning ProVigil and some of the other stuff, that all these things are banned by the NFL, which uh, 
ironic to me that some of the drugs, there might be drugs out there that are banned by the NFL that probably would help some, some of these athletes. Yeah, totally. So... <clears throat> So Vince, what's what's on the horizon for you? Are you guys doing any sort of new testing? Are you guys experimenting with any new equipment? What's uh, what's on your agenda for 2015? You there? I think we lost him. Oh, we lost him. Ah, uh, what a shame. Well, maybe he'll yeah. get back on. Either way. Um, so Steve, uh, while we have a moment. Uh, any uh, feedback on the compacts? <laughs> um, before did you do the we started today? here, did, did you do the I, I, today? I haven't trained yet. I haven't trained yet, but my calves oh. are so big that it probably won't hurt. I'm um, just teasing, obviously. Um, I, I asked Luke before I got on, um, uh, before we start recording, rather, is every part of my body supposed to feel like it had been uh, pummeled and assaulted? Um, and apparently, the answer is yes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Literally, I've come up with a new term, which is uh, not delayed onset muscle soreness, but uh, immediate onset muscle soreness. Uh, we call that we call that getting compacts. Okay, well, hey, whatever you say, tomato, I say tomato. That yeah. shit. I did my quads, and literally, I took the pads off. I was like, oh my god, triceps, fuck my life. Now, yesterday, we did glutes. and I didn't feel anything. And I got home, and I was like, I, I like tried to stand up out of the car. And was like, um, mm, this isn't gonna be good. Uh, it's been pretty sick, actually. Um, I guess one of the things I have I asked Luke about was how soon in advance should I start tapering that off before the open? Because if it, like he was saying, if it's if it's maximal muscular contraction during training, I'm not gonna adapt because it's gonna keep getting harder and harder on my body. Well, here's the theory. The idea is that uh, whatever the pad comes in contact with is going to get motor units to fire. So what you're doing is you're getting full recruitment of those motor units. And what it's effectively doing is it's giving, uh, it's you know waking up dormant muscle fibers. It's uh, you know creating uh, just indiscriminate firing. And those are not unique patterns. Those are just like a barrage. So then when you start uh, you know mixing in specific movement patterns, like you know you know creating new neuromuscular pathways or more importantly like you talked about with the uh, you know like learning that movement like for example if you were to you know get your quads to fire and all of a sudden you're at 100% activation of all your motor units and then you go in and you do something like a squat that squat is like a specific movement pattern whereas this is just general so what I really looked at the compacts almost as being like a call to action that this thing is like waking up and getting everybody ready to rock and then you have to go out and actually do specific movement patterns to to know to like reinforce what has effectively happened. So um, what we found is that uh, you know the, the way I programmed it into FieldStrong, we just did it static for the first couple of weeks, just because I wanted everybody to be familiar with it. I wanted them to know what it felt like and this. And now you've seen us move over and we're doing more dynamic work with it. And uh, right. that's where really. Uh, things become interesting because you're getting full max recruitment um, and really what the complex and really what EMS does is it creates uh, a, well, it, the, the electricity is forcing a concentric contraction and then what you're doing is you're dynamically fighting against it to create eccentric and we know the eccentric is much more damaging um, right. so moral of the story is that goes away so the soreness is really just your first taste of it 
uh, soreness goes away. It really only comes maybe like the first time if you continue to use it. What we found, though, is that you'll get sore, and then you'll use it, and you won't get sore. Then all of a sudden, if you take it away for a bunch of weeks, and you come back, you'll get sore again. So as long as you continue to use it, I, uh, the soreness will not last. But that's why I usually tell people, like, let's start with it static, see how you do. You'll get sore, and then you won't get sore. And then all of a sudden, when you add it in dynamically, you'll get sore, and then you won't get sore. So what I would think to do is... Uh, I would probably take it out of the dynamic stuff and I would go back to the static and really okay. what it's doing is it is uh, you know identifying weaknesses and imbalances in the body as well. And I'm sure you've seen this when you start doing it like bilaterally, like hey I got it on both hey. quads and all of a sudden one quad's firing and the other one's not. So yeah. you know, then you can kind of juice it up and get it to kind of work and you, you definitely want to balance bilateral contractions regardless of what the intensity is on the machine so then you can kind of go that's what I've been doing I don't care what the number is I want I want the muscle to feel like it's contracting uh, relatively synchronous on both sides one side could be at 70 the other would be at 20 Perfect. but that's I just figured that was muscle imbalances yes yeah so you know and we know where injuries come from it's not necessarily from a weakness it's usually from one side that's stronger than the other right. so it's been really neat with the complex is we've been able to actually uh, go out and start identifying muscle imbalances and then this actually really picks them up and like all of a sudden uh, you know um, I spoke to Leah yesterday on the phone and she uh, we were kind of going over and I was like you know how's it feeling she's like you know I have never been sore in my DMOs and she's like <laughs> for the first time she goes the, the complex is lighting them up she's like when I was squatting all of a sudden I got the bar like a little bit forward uh, then I out of position and she's like the bar just like flew up and she's like, it was almost like my VMO, which I had been squatting away from, like the minute I got into it, all of a sudden it fired. And she's like, it was a weird feeling. And um, she's like, there's like a constant pump in there. And it's like, you know, there's a good chance that maybe the movement pattern that you've developed, you know, without, you know, going into a ton of assessment, you know, people get comfortable in movement patterns. And really what's um, become really fascinating with the EMS is just the fact that, you know, it's kind of bringing some stuff to light. I mean, you know, to quote you guys earlier, it's just clearing away a little bit of the rubble. It's allowing us to see some stuff. And so yeah. uh, it's it's been, it's it's actually pretty cool. And then you start looking at, you know, rehabbing injuries. I mean, I, I used it when I tore my patella tendon and got the muscles to fire. I mean, we've had guys that have, you know, had injuries and have been able to train with load, that have been able to use the EMS, which is, you know, pre prevented atrophy and helped them, you know, get to the position stay strong to where all of a sudden when the injury starts healing, all of a sudden, they're not six, eight weeks behind, you know. So right. everyone needs a complex. Hey, I don't want to interrupt, oh, do. but we just so. we just got uh, we just got Vince back on the line, and I'm I'm super stoked that we didn't lose him forever and ever because oh. I, <laughs> I want to know, uh, Vince, what's what's on your agenda for 2015? What are some new things you're working with? Are there any changes, or you know, what's what's your year look like? Well, uh, the Question about validating all of this this work. Uh, we've started to do that with a junior college baseball program to validate some of these, these training protocols, uh, and we're in the middle of a study to do that. Um, so we're looking at being able to do a lot more research and validate the training that we're doing, um, which will be different because again, some folks are just doing you know the lab work training, they're doing the lecture type stuff we're trying to combine all that so one thing that's exciting is that we're looking at, at doing some studies to do that and we're we've got some options with some different folks yeah the other is being able to expand this to different places one of the things that we have are athletes that are seasonal 
and would love to be able to locate. I've got, you know, you mentioned some of the costs of these things. I have a couple of other licenses for NeuroTracker systems and all of this technology that we haven't put anywhere yet. I would like to be able to locate this someplace. So we're working on doing that, whether it's a college program or a professional team where we have athletes for a longer period of time. We're just like their training is periodized. It's, you know, preseason, in-season, postseason training, whatnot. Being able to have it where we can continue to use this technology during the course of the entire season and study that and validate that and modify our training protocol. So what's exciting is looking at – this is all on the just beginning to scratch the surface of, of combining you know, cognitive training, neuro training, mental skills training, all of that with, with the performance training of the athletes. So that's one thing that's exciting is looking at being able to do that. Um, the other – is continue to look at new ways of doing this in technology. It's it's constantly changing. There's new things that are coming out. I really do think that what we're doing is different because we're combining a lot of different things. In it's not fragmented where it's not you go do this over here and then come here. So that's that's what's exciting is being able to just gather more information, more data, send these athletes out to play, have them come back, tell us how they did, monitor that. Um, so that's what's exciting. Awesome. Awesome. And is there anything that you wanted to sort of, uh, you know, towards the end of the show, we like to promote things that are coming up, but is there anything, uh, websites, you know, I know we'll attach your website to the, to the post when we post up the episode. Um, but just give us a refresher on the, your website and, um, in the name of your facility. Sure. It's the, uh, we, we are, I am the national sports performance Institute at Cooper sport performance and rehab. Um, and you have the website. It's www.nsp as National Sports Performance Institute, all one nspinstitute.com. And there's a link to Cooper Sport Performance on there, and vice versa. If you go to Cooper Sport Performance and Rehab, we're located in Tampa. Um, we have athletes that'll come and stay in the Tampa area and train with us, uh, you know, periodically for a period of time. We had a hockey player from Europe that came and stayed all summer with us. We had 12 kids from the Dominican Republic. Uh, baseball kids that came and stayed all summer in Tampa and trained with us. So people come from all over, even though we're located in Tampa, they will travel because uh, we do have everything in one place. Uh, you know, I, uh, would you guys? Would you guys? Uh, we would have to get these like us three monkeys or four of us down there and do some testing. I wonder what that would be like. Uh, uh, guarantee first place. A gar- Luke guarantees uh, first place in anything, regardless of whether that's relevant. Apparently. Uh, but uh, I, would love, I would love for you guys to come <laughs> and, uh, especially this time of year, enjoy some Florida weather. Uh, but come and see what we're doing and, and do it different. We've gone very, we've gone slowly with promoting this because we want to do it right. Yeah. There's a lot of folks out there. I mean, I'm not a big believer in, in <clears throat> just doing something to be out there different and new. We want to do this right, and uh, we're pretty excited about what we're the feedback we're getting from our athletes, their performance on the field, and starting to gather some of this data. So I would love for you guys to come and, and take a look at it. I would love to, too. I'm also afraid that if we go to Tampa, we're going to end up training with the RAF. <laughs> what is uh, – where are you located in Tampa? Um, we are considered North Tampa off of uh, – I don't know if you're familiar with the area, Dale Mabry Waters area. Yeah, I used to live in Clearwater. Ah, okay. Right? So, we're yeah. yeah, we're pretty centrally located to from the airport – yeah. Um, central to Tampa, easy to get back and forth across the bay. 
Yeah, I, I used to live right in Safety Harbor. Uh, David Wells was my neighbor. I used to hang out with David uh, Wells. Uh, that was fun. <laughs> yeah, he was a great guy to hang out with. Yeah. So, Vince, what out of all these tests, which ones are the most excruciating? Is there anything <laughs> where your life's on the line, anything like that? <laughs> not not your life, maybe your pride, but not your life. <laughs> that's your, that's worse. Life. That's worse, yeah. <laughs> You're talking yeah. to the, the right crowd then. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, no, Vince, it's, uh, it's been fun. Yeah, yeah I, I mean – I'm so envious of your job, and uh, had I had more education, um, you know, maybe I too one day could could have like the the glamorous job that I imagine you have. So I'm very envious, and I really appreciate you taking the time out to chat with us. And um, I know that all of our listeners are going to uh, are going to love this episode. I'm stoked to put it out. So we'll try to get it out there, um, you know, in the next couple of weeks. Yeah, and if we ever do, well, I'm sure. We'll make a trip to Tampa. We have some people out yeah. there. Uh, we'll, we'll have to hit you up in, in ample time to see if we can cross paths. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I, I, would, I would love to have you come to Tampa, be, be our, not just guests at our facility, but uh, show you the Tampa Bay area. And, um, and you know, uh, just one more thing, if you indulge me, I mean, it's just, we get a lot of requests for interns. I've had several psychology and sports psych interns over the last year mm-hmm. because it's, an, it's a different – type of an experience to get an internship or, or um, you know, uh, experience hours in the field because of what we're doing. And also strength and conditioning coaches um, and strength and conditioning students and health science students will come and they will intern with Cooper, with Josh Cooper in Tampa. Um, and we get athletes, or excuse me, we get uh, students from all over that want to come and intern there because of everything that's going on there. So we welcome interns as well. Yeah, when should I be there? (laughs) Come on down. (laughs) Sounds amazing. Well, thanks again, Vince. And uh, I know Tex is really appreciative too. He's kind of, he's buzzing us and telling us, you know, to thank you. Um, You know, this has been, for me personally, a great experience. (laughs) Absolutely. Thank you, guys. I really do appreciate it. And uh, thanks for your interest. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Steve, anything you want to add before we leave? Well, Steve actually popped off. Oh, he did. Oh, he's out. All we right. We got Denny. We got Denny. Denny, anything you want to add before we break off? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks a lot. Thank All right. you. All right, Vince. Will you take it easy? Yep, you guys too. All the best. All right, bye-bye. about Vince's work or are interested in interning with him, visit nspinstitute.com and look for the Cooper Speed and Strength icon. The CrossFit Football Specialty Seminar is in full effect for 2015, and next month we'll be bringing the knowledge, coaching, and superior movie quote repertoire to Belfast, Ireland, Norman, Oklahoma, and more. For more seminar dates, please go to crossfitfootball.com. And lastly, if you haven't stopped by PowerAthleteHQ.com in a while, what are you waiting for? Learn how to empower your performance through programming, training articles, and rendering lard. That's right, let our very own Paula Lean teach you the meaning of Flesh Builds Flesh with her recent post on the whys and hows of using lard in your performance diet. Well, that just about does it for this week's episode of Power Athlete Radio. Bye! Train and I'm right on track, I'm-